If you have your copies of God's word, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, that can be found on page 946 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. We have a lot of text this morning, so we're going to go ahead and jump in. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31 and going through the end of the chapter. This is Holy Scripture. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may believe. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Amen. You can be seated. Much has happened in John chapter 5. Today is kind of like the season finale, bringing to close the events of chapter 5 specifically and the first five chapters more broadly. Jesus, of course, in this chapter, as we've seen, has been identifying himself clearly as Israel's God and Messiah. Today's exchange in particular, he continues towards this end, and we'll see that the already high tension between him and the religious leaders is going to come to an all-time high. We can think of, as we have, we can think of Jesus as being on trial before the religious leaders. They were provoked by Jesus' actions and his interpretation of those works, which they should have been. Jesus heals a man, and he does so on the Sabbath. And then he claims exception to the Sabbath command because, well, he's God. Now, if you're a Jew who confesses the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Jesus' claim to equality with God, it would create consternation. They're hearing blasphemy. And so the religious leaders, in one sense, have Jesus on trial. They are determined to find out if Jesus is who he's saying he is, if they're hearing him correctly. And as the teachers of God's law, 
as the leaders of Israel, they should be provoked. In one sense, this trial is a good thing of sorts. Right, but there's a difference between asking questions to understand and asking questions to try to entrap someone, to try to disprove somebody. What Jesus is going to do in our text is actually reveal their motives. They're corrupt judges. They're actually false teachers. They're disingenuous worshipers. We'll split our text in half this morning into two scenes, like points that will help us grasp the text. Scene one in this trial... Scene one, Jesus defends his divinity. Scene one, Jesus defends his divinity. Scene two, Jesus prosecutes their idolatry. Jesus prosecutes their idolatry. Scene one, Jesus defends his divinity. That is his claim to be the God-man. Then Jesus is going to actually turn the tables in the courtroom. Scene two, Jesus prosecutes their idolatry. That is, they are men who want to stand in the place of God. They, as we heard in the scripture reading, and we'll see, they lack the love of God, but they are full of love of self. Before we go wagging our fingers at the religious leaders, their problem, the idolatry of self, of glory-mongering, it is the human condition. Mankind finds itself guilty of the same accusations, and yet Jesus offers us life. The shape of the text we'll see this morning, it's actually a gospel response, faith and repentance. Jesus is calling us to believe in who he is and is putting forth evidence that we should believe in him. Scene two, Jesus is calling us to repent of those things that would keep us from him. Why? That we would believe So starting with scene one, Jesus defends himself, and he's going to do so by calling three witnesses to the stand. He's going to call a human witness, that is John the Baptist, a divine witness, this is the triune God, specifically the Father and the Spirit working through Jesus' works and word, and then a divine human witness, that is Scripture, as God speaks through inspired human authors. Verse 31 sets up the quote-unquote need for witnesses. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, that's a strange statement for someone who in John 14, 6, describes himself as the truth. Is Jesus here saying that if he speaks about himself, it's always false? Like, it's always opposite day for Christ. What's your name? It's not Jesus. (laughs) So it is. We see a similar scene in John chapter 8. There Jesus offers life. There the Pharisees also, verse 13, say, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Basically, we need some proof saying that your God doesn't demonstrate you are God any more than yelling bankruptcy fixes your problems. Like, Jesus, we need, we need some paperwork, like a heavenly ID or something. Now, Jesus, as the truth, as the light who gives light to all men, doesn't need to appeal to anybody he responds to their objections in john chapter 8 verse 14 even if i testify about myself my testimony is true in john 5 up to this point jesus has given enough evidence about who he is turning water into wine stopping death healing the lame working on the sabbath he's given enough evidence through his words as well his interpretation of scripture his explanation of who he is because of where he's come from 
Here in John chapter 5, Jesus is exercising great patience. He's saying he's not going to give in a special pleading. In their legal system, you would establish evidence on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And although Jesus doesn't have to do this, he says, okay, I'll give you two or three witnesses. And he does so, verse 34, because he desires for them to believe and be saved. Jesus, even here, is trying to remove every obstacle of faith before us. Verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Now, most commentators, rightly, I think, see this as a reference to the Father. The Father, as we'll see below, testifies to the Son through his works and his word. This is also true of the Spirit. He is another whom Jesus promises to send in John 14, 15. He is the spirit of truth who testifies to Christ and convicts the world, John 16, 8. Jesus' most important testimony comes from God. But before we get to the son's father, Jesus starts with his cousin, John the Baptist. Okay, so Jesus calls witness one of the stand, the wilderness man. He's not actually there, but you could picture him walking in, camel clothes, locust snacks, takes a stand verse 33 Jesus says you sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth Jesus is appealing here is something familiar you'll recall in the beginning of the gospel John the Baptist had a growing flourishing ministry he preached about the coming kingdom a kingdom that Israel anticipated the kingdom for God for them and for us they would have thought of new creation that is freedom from the curse. They would have thought of new exodus. That is freedom from sin. They would have thought of a new king. That is freedom from their enemies. And a new covenant. That is a new kind of relationship with God whereby he becomes their God and they are his people. The Messiah was going to bring this new age in. And you'll recall in John chapter 1, the religious leaders send a truth envoy to John. Ask him the question, who are you? What they're really wondering is, are you that guy? John testified to the truth. John chapter 1, verse 20. He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Well, who are you then? John chapter 1, verse 23. John responds, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. John came in the spirit of Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, Isaiah 40, they tell us that one would be sent before the coming of the Lord to prepare the hearts of the people for the day of visitation. John is like the flashing lights that come before the train. They understood from his message, they should have, what it meant. John was preaching that the kingdom is coming, prepare yourselves. Jesus' message is the kingdom is here, prostrate yourselves. Jesus is telling him, witness one is John. You sent people to them. He testified to the truth. And then Jesus offers an important caveat in this kind of trial, verse 34. Jesus says, I don't receive human testimony. I think what Jesus is saying here is his claim to be Israel's God and Messiah, it doesn't finally rest upon John's witness, upon his testimony in court. Who Jesus is is not validated by John's ministry. If you've ever seen a high-profile law case, maybe you're old enough for the OJ trial, maybe more recently the Johnny Depp trial. 
I know, a number of you watched it. You know, a good witness can make or break a case. There's nothing more embarrassing than watching your own witness tank your case in court. But in reality, a witness only testifies to what they've seen, even if they can sway the jury. They're not creating reality. Jesus' claim to be God the Son and the Son of Man does not depend on what John the Baptist says or does. It doesn't depend upon what we think or do. Christ doesn't need him or us for his case. Then why is Jesus appealing to John? Look at verse 34, Jesus goes on. But I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is appealing to something familiar to them. They went to John, they heard him. And brothers and sisters, consider the heart of our Savior. The religious leaders have already resolved to kill Christ, verse 18. Jesus is trying to put whatever he can in front of them, whatever shred of evidence, a testimony, so that they can believe and be saved. He came not to condemn, even as he's already been condemned. He offers them life. He offers us life. Anything else from the witness? Yes, one more, verse 35. Jesus says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus here is reminding us really of what John said in the prologue, John 1.8. He, that is John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. You see, John was a lamp. Christ is the light. His job was to lead others to the light. Brothers and sisters, we too, like John, have received light from God. John 1.9. We're set ablaze like lamps so that we may burn with zeal and lead others to Christ. John did his job such that Jesus can actually say, believe like John told you to. Brothers and sisters, Jesus continues to speak through people today. Believe like your mother told you, like your grandfather told you, like your Sunday school teacher told you, like your coach told you, like your pastors told you. You see, good Christians are lamps. They Burn and shine with light given to them from God that others may follow them to the light which is Christ. Believe like John told you to. Would Jesus be able to say the same of us? Believe like NBC told you. Are we lamps burning and shining that others might see the sun? Are our hearts inflamed by the Savior's love? Do we long for the vision of Christ's glory? Do others take notice? Do we speak the truth about Christ? John was set on fire in such a way that people had to go see. And they actually, Jesus says, if you look at the text, even of the religious leaders, they rejoiced in his light. They delighted in the news that they heard about the coming kingdom and the outpouring of the spirit. They liked what they were seeing this buzz in Jerusalem, even among the young people. But notice Jesus says they rejoiced in his light for what? A little while. It only lasted a little while. Why? Why do some of your friends walk away? It seems like they walk with Christ for a while. They're in the light and then they retreat to the darkness. Why do some people rejoice for a little while and then fade away? Paul Washer gave a sermon at a 
youth retreat in 2002. Maybe you've seen it on YouTube. It's titled Shocking Youth Message. <laughs> now, I believe the night before Paul Washer preached, someone preaches the gospel. You know, everybody comes to Christ for like the 10th time. They're given all the assurance they're going to heaven kind of thing. Paul Washer stands up there with great concern. He's fearful for them, he says, because he's concerned that they'll think that because they prayed a prayer, they're going to go to heaven. And yet they'll go on living cultural Christianity. One marked not by faith and repentance, but by blending in with the world. He tells them we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith is accompanied by repentance. It leads to repentance. And he tells them his concern for them is that they pray to prayer, but they have no real love for God, no real hatred for sin. Now, if you've seen the video, you know what happens next. Everybody starts cheering. Everyone's clapping. You get them, Paul. Washer leans in and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Silence. You see, they rejoiced in his light for a little while. People enjoy good preaching until it confronts them. God is love. Amen. His kingdom is coming. Amen. There will be recreation and resurrection from the dead. Amen. Amen. If you don't repent of your sins, renounce your God, and trust in a bloodied cross, you'll be on the outside looking in. Silence. You see, the leaders liked John's calls for repentance until they realized he was talking to them. Jesus is saying you should have followed their lamp to the light. I want to give you life. It's one thing to dismiss witness one. It's an entirely different thing to ignore witness number two. Jesus calls to the stand God. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. John's words and works, his message of repentance and baptism, they testified to Jesus. Jesus has a greater testimony because the Father himself testifies in the works of the Son. As we've seen, because the Son is from the Father, he can't do anything on his own. He only does what he sees. Everything that he sees the Father doing, he does. This is because Jesus is all that the Father is. He is his perfect image or imprint. He is God's word that is his perfect self-understanding and expression. He is his Son. Everything that the Son does testifies to the Father. In everything that the Son does, the Father testifies this is my son. We've seen some of these greater works that Jesus is speaking about, greater than baptism, creation, preservation, turning water into wine, holding back death, healing the lame, working on the Sabbath. Soon enough, Jesus himself will rise from the dead, ascend to the Father, give the gift of the Spirit. He will one day rip the dead out of the ground and judge them. On the day of judgment, when you see Jesus resurrect the world and convict them for their sins against God, you won't wonder if he learned that in college. You'll say, God. When Jesus raised the layman on the Sabbath day, they shouldn't have thought blasphemy, but woe is me. I'm standing in the presence of God. 
and everything that Jesus does and will do, the Father testifies to the world, this is my son. When he teaches, the Father's saying, this is my son. When he calls his disciples, this is my son. When he's kind to his mother and turns water into wine, this is my son. When he speaks truth to Nicodemus and offers life, the Father's saying, this is my son. When he has compassion on the woman at the well and saves her entire town, the Father is saying, this is my son. When he stops death and heals the lame and confronts the leaders, God the Father is saying, this is my son. Jesus is from the Father such that to hear him is to hear God. To see him is to see God. Why then did the religious leaders not catch on to this? Think about how easily you could identify somebody you know. Somebody you know really well. It's probably a normal experience. You're sitting in your home. You hear the door opening. Someone comes in. You hear a voice. It's your roommate, your spouse, a parent, a child. You know them. You get up. You go to greet them. You see their face, their form. You know them. Now imagine you're sitting in your home. You hear the door open. Someone come in and you hear a voice you don't recognize. Okay? You probably start to panic a little bit. You then see someone you don't recognize. You probably start to freak out. You see, you identify people by their voice and their face or their form. Instinctively, you see someone and you know, I know that person, I love them, I trust them, I don't know that person, perhaps they're danger to me. What's tripping up the religious leaders is not that Jesus is simply applying pressure to their understanding of God. Like this whole one God and three persons thing is, I can't wrap my mind around it. Can you start from the beginning? No, their problem is they don't actually know God, period. They would miss him, well, if he stood before them healing the lame and raising the dead. To the leaders, to many in the Bible Belt, God in the temple is like an intruder in their home because he's a stranger to them. Jesus goes on, look at verse 37. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You haven't heard him, you haven't seen him. Now, in one sense, and we saw this even in our scripture reading, no one can look upon God and die. We see this in John chapter 118. No one has seen God except for God the Son. In one sense, none of us can see or hear God. Okay, we do the... Grace and Truth Catechism at home with our kids. One of the questions is, what is God? Does anybody know the answer? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men, okay? God doesn't have vocal cords like we have vocal cords. There's, you know, there's no Google Translate for God's language. God doesn't have a body for us to look upon. This is why Jesus came to reveal God in flesh, in blood. Now, on a more relational or covenantal level, Old Testament saints, like Moses, they heard God. Exodus 33, 11, Moses spoke to God face to face as with a friend. There's a sense in which they heard his voice and they saw something, even as we saw in our scripture reading today, something of his form, even if it was his backside. The great irony here is they think themselves to be followers of Moses. They're not. If they were, Jesus is saying, you'd recognize God's voice like Moses did. You'd recognize his face like Moses did. But you don't know his voice. You don't know his face. 
So witness one, John the Baptist. Witness two, God who speaks through the Son's works. Witness three is God's word. Jesus says they, you don't know what God sounds like. You don't know what he looks like. And then he adds a third thing, third thing, verse 38. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Notice Jesus is bringing together the closest possible link between the written word and the divine word, which is himself. You can't have one without the other because one is about the other. It is the lamp that leads us to the light, which is Christ. Jesus presses in further here, verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet, they testify about me. They're a witness to me. Jesus' verdict is damning. You spend all this time reading scripture, and yet you miss the point. Every story, every thread, every promise, every type, it runs like a stream to me. Think about even creation. Jesus Christ himself is the firstborn over all creation. Think about Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. He is true humanity. He is Abraham's offspring. That is the true Israel. He is David's greater son, the true king. He is the prophet who speaks the very words of God as God. He is the priest who covers the sins of his people by his own death. He is a truer and better temple. He is true God and true man. The whole of it is about him, and they missed it. They missed it. The author of Hebrews begins his epistle this way. He writes, Long ago God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus saying the scriptures, the prophets in the scriptures, they, God spoke through them about me. God is now speaking through me about me. What God whispered in the Old Testament through the prophets, he shouts in the new through his son, which is his own voice and form. But they miss it. They don't get it. Now, their problem, and it's important for us to see, their problem is not intellectual. You don't need a PhD in biblical studies to grasp the gospel. Their problem is moral and spiritual. A veil is covering their hearts, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.15. The issue Jesus is saying is they don't believe. But brothers and sisters, don't miss this. You can know a lot about the Bible. Tons. You can be a pastor. You can be a professor. You can memorize scripture, you can be in D groups, you can sit through sermons and still not have God's word inside of you. They poured over the scriptures. Their problem was it wasn't inside them. That is a deadly difference. Someone who truly loves God's word loves his son. They trust in him. Their affections are stirred for him. They walk in obedience by him. The scriptures lead them to him. Jesus is rebuking them for completely misunderstanding and misbelieving the point of Scripture. Okay, it doesn't matter how well you know your TV manual. If you use it to make dinner, you don't know what it's about. You can know about your Bible and not know Jesus personally. And Jesus' goal, his extension, the offer of eternal life is relationship with him and the Father. 
Jesus' goal is relationship, like bride and groom, friend and friend, servant and Lord. Knowing information from your Bible is not the same thing as trusting Jesus. It's not the same thing as loving Jesus. It's not the same thing as walking with Jesus or obeying Jesus. Friends, hell will be full of people who memorize John 3.16. It will. Jesus tells us many will go to him on that day, Matthew 7. But didn't we know about your Bible? And he's going to say, yes, but I never knew you. It's knowing Jesus that saves us, period. We don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying, though. Some of us need to hear the flip side of the rebuke. Jesus says that the scriptures testify to him. We cannot, we cannot know Jesus without our Bibles, period. Jesus is not rebuking them for pouring over scripture. That's good, Psalm 1. Happy is the one whose delight is in the instruction of the Lord. Jesus is rebuking them for their willful ignorance, for their lack of belief, for not going to him for life when it's offered them. They are suppressing the truth of Scripture because they love themselves. They, in a sense, know their Bibles, but they are abusing it. In that sense, they don't really know anything about it. Scriptures testify to Christ. That means that God's word is where we not only go to learn about Jesus, but Hebrews 1.1, God speaks to us through it today. That means the Bible is where we go to be with Jesus. It's where we sit at his feet. It's where the Father talks to us through his word and by his spirit. Calvin says it's where we hear the voice of God. And the sacraments are where we see his form. Calvin is helpful here. He writes, We ought to believe that Christ cannot be properly known in any way, any other way than from the scriptures. And if it be so, it follows that we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. You see, brothers and sisters, if we come to find and believe in a Jesus that's different than the Jesus of the Bible, then we've come to believe in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Easy litmus test. If your Jesus' ethic flows with the tides of culture, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. And yet, if your desire is to see Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if your desire is to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to be with Jesus, to hear his voice, then it's to Scripture we must turn. Make it your aim, Calvin says, to find Christ in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, is it your goal to be with Jesus, to find him, to see him, to hear from him, to spend your mornings with him? Are you spending time in the word? If not, why? If you're not spending time in scripture, you're spending time somewhere else in your conception of Jesus as being formed one way or the other. We see that knowing about the Bible is not the same thing as knowing Jesus, and yet you can't know Jesus without knowing your Bible. This is not some kind of trap. <laughs> like you have to proceed to your Bible with caution. The issue is one of motive. 
They lack faith and they're full of pride. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. You're unwilling. The problem is their rejection of Christ. Nothing is keeping them from believing but themselves. We confess this in our church's confession on the freeness of the gospel. We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by faith and repentance, and that nothing, nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. Their problem is they are unwilling. The ascended Lord Jesus Christ offers them life, and he offers life today. If you're not a Christian, we would implore you this morning to hear Jesus' own voice from Scripture. What will save you is not religious practices or moral modification. To receive eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, you simply need to believe in Jesus. That he is who he says he is. God become man to live and to die for sinners like you and me. He has risen, he will return to judge the dead, and today he offers you life. He speaks to you. Turn to him for life. In our first scene, Jesus offers up three witnesses in his defense. A man, John the Baptist, God, the Father and Spirit, and then God's own word. Many hear the gospel, and yet they don't respond. What we see is the biggest obstacle to belief is internal. Scene one, Jesus defends his divinity and in doing so calls us to faith. Scene two, Jesus turns to prosecute their idolatry and in doing so calls us to repent of those things that would keep us from him. Scene two, and Jesus begins with man's main obstacle to faith, which is self-pride, self-love or pride. The thought that we actually deserve what God deserves. Jesus begins in this turning the tables, verse 41. I do not accept glory from people. Now, this is a curious statement. If you've grown up in the church, you know where we are to glorify God, we're to glorify the Son. Jesus in John chapter 5 has already said, the Father has given all judgment to him so that all peoples will honor him, that is, worship him, glorify him, just as they honor the Father. What does Jesus mean? We are indeed to glorify the Son, meaning we acknowledge his worth and value. We don't add to it. We can't. Right? Saying that it's hot outside doesn't make the sun any warmer. We simply acknowledge what's true. I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's not trying to please people. His glory, John 1.14, is an eternally shared glory with the Father. And with the Spirit. The glory that Jesus is seeking comes from the Father, John 17, 1. It can't increase or decrease, and it certainly doesn't come from us people. So, again, as we think about Christ, He is God according to His divine nature. He possesses the fullness of glory. He becomes man, He veils Himself. No one is looking at Jesus and thinking glorious. Nobody looks at the cross and thinks glorious. It's because God has veiled Himself. He becomes man, he obeys this man. As a consequence of his obedience, God exalts him, 
to the position that he already had as God, but now as the God-man. So Jesus is after this glory, the glory that he possesses eternally from the Father, but now to receive as the God-man. Okay, but what Jesus is saying is he doesn't aim to please people. He aims to please God. Verse 42, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I cue your, cue your favorite shocked meme or gif. <laughs> Andy Dwyer. You don't know God's voice. You don't know his form. You don't know his word. You don't know his son. You don't know him, period. But I know you, and you don't love God. I got an annual physical this week. It included uh, chest x-rays. When I was in there with the tech, the nurse, she said, wow, you broke your clavicle and you have some hardware. It's true, I have this huge scar. I have plate screws put in long ago playing flag football, <laughs> the glory days. <clears throat> now imagine if I said, no, I never broke it. There's no metal in me. She's like, but I can see it right, I can see it right here in the x-ray, right? You have no love for God. Yes, we do. She's like, I can see into your heart. You want to kill me. Jesus knows them. This is because God's x-ray is his word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that one well. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We stand naked before the word who is the judge. Jesus looks into them. They may clothe themselves in religious garb. They may be circumcised. Their faces may be white from fasting. They may fool everyone else, but they will not fool God. Before him, they are naked and exposed. Not that Jesus even needs supernatural power to make his assessment. He's God. They hate him. They hate God. Jesus only says what he hears. He's the very voice of God, and they cannot wait to shut him up. Jesus puts them on trial, and he accuses them, really of one thing put two different ways. He says, you have no love for God. And then he says, you seek the glory that comes from man. This is the idolatry of the self, thinking that we deserve what alone belongs to God. Jesus goes on, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Now, what's Jesus getting at? I think what he's getting at is that during this time, false messiahs were a dime a dozen. The religious leaders are used to hearing about a new Messiah rolling into town. This is why they sent there, they already had a committee they sent to John. They got application questions, you know, put your thumb here. They're used to this. I think Jesus is saying the religious leaders regularly accepted these would-be Messiahs because it led to their own acclaim or praise or glory. Like they want a Messiah who's gonna pander to them, who will puff them up, not one who's gonna call them on their sin. 
At minimum, these would-be messiahs did not disrupt the status quo. And yet when Jesus goes into the temple, John chapter 2 we saw, he sees that it's been turned into a business and he flips things upside down. They want a different kind of messiah. One that will allow them to glory. One that will maybe add to their glory. Not this one. We see their lack of love for God, their love of self, is an obstacle to faith in Jesus Christ. It's why they don't believe. Again, the problem is not intellectual. Jesus says, verse 44, How can you believe? Since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Said differently, you'll never be able to believe the gospel insofar as you're more concerned with the approval of people. You're not seeking God's acceptance. You're seeking your neighbor's acceptance. See, seeking the glory that is the approval of people is exhausting. It's fleeting. And it's incompatible with the worship of God. Friends, if your life is full of nothing but the praise of men today, you will likely not hear commendation from God on that day. And yet, seeking the glory that comes from God is life-giving. We accept his glory that has come to us in his Son. We accept it by faith. We're brought into a glorious relationship, brought into the life of the Trinity. We are given a glorious mission, and we have a glorious end. We know that the suffering of this age, it doesn't even compare with the glory that's to be revealed to us, God's children. But we cannot seek the approval of men and of God. We cannot believe the gospel of God and of the world. Brothers and sisters, we cannot preach the gospel of God and of the world. Augustine notes that the religious leaders here really are false teachers. False teachers tell you what you want to hear so that you can tell them what they want to hear. You see, when we soften or change the gospel to tell people what they want to hear so we can hear what we want to hear, you're such a cool Christian, right? We're participating in a kind of false teaching. Jesus is reminding us there were popular messiahs then, but they weren't the messiahs of the Bible. There are popular Christs today, but they're not the Christ of Scripture. Same name, different guy. One will allow you to glory before people here, the other will not. And yet he offers us something so much greater. Christ here reminds us that the greatest obstacle to belief is pride. The cross reminds the sinner that there is no room to boast. What we deserve is death, and the life that we receive is a gift. The cross brings us to our knees that we may fix our gaze upon our glorious God, the crucified and resurrected King. Jesus has flipped the tables in this trial, and then he brings one more witness to the stand, one that would shock them because it's one that they had put their hope in. Jesus calls to the stand Moses, verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Notice the great irony here. The Jewish leaders, their hope is in Moses, meaning their law covenant. 
And yet Jesus is saying you don't even believe what he wrote. You pour over the scriptures, sinking in them, you possess life. They testify about me. The leaders, specifically Israel more broadly, they think that they're justified, that is forgiven by God and made righteous because of their covenant with him, their law covenant. Simply put, they think they're saved because of their ethnicity and their works. Jesus is simply saying here what we saw often when we were in the book of Galatians. Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Paul says, it is clear no one is justified before God by the law. If you look to the law, that is to your works, you'll only find death. The law is intended to lead us to life insofar as it shows us our sin and our need for a savior and as it points us to Jesus, the one who perfectly kept the law and yet was punished under it on behalf of his people. Friends, if your hope before God is in your good works, in being good enough, you'll find that you are under a curse. This is because the law demands perfect obedience, which you cannot achieve. From birth, you're already dead. If you look to the law for life, you misunderstand it. Jesus says you don't even actually believe it. The old covenant here, as Moses captured it in his writing, it was intended to reveal Israel's sin and her need for a savior. The sacrificial system revealed her need for atonement. The turnover of priests and constant sacrifices of animals revealed the need for something better, longer lasting, that dealt with guilt, that actually dealt with the penalty and presence of sin, that God's presence was limited to the Holy of Holies revealed they needed something more accessible, that Israel's kings constantly sinned and led them to sin revealed they needed a better king, one who would not crush them but be crushed for them. Moses, through shadow and type and prophecy, wrote about Christ, and he's screaming to Israel and to us, believe in Jesus. The problem is, the religious leaders looked to the law and they thought it's time to get to work. And they liked that because they thought they could use it to prop themselves up to glory before God and others. Our natural response to the law tends to be the same thing. If I work hard enough... I'll earn favor and glory. Into the law actually points away from itself to Christ. It reveals sin and our need for a savior. Its systems, its types, its shadows are intended to help us see we need Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you actually believed Moses, you would believe in me. He wrote about me. But because you don't, he'll actually stand up on that day to accuse you before me, the judge. You see, the great irony is that when your hope is in your works, they stand to accuse you on the day of judgment. Moses becomes their accuser. When your hope is in Christ, there is no accusation to be made. The judge has died in our stead. Our sins were placed upon his back and hung on the tree. He rises now to our defense. He stands not to accuse, but to advocate on our behalf. From the cross and from heaven, he says, it is finished. They are mine. When we confess our sin, when we do it in the gathering, we're rehearsing a list of what has already been forgiven in court. The judge himself has dealt with our problem. 
God has become man and lamb to save his people. All other hopes will fail you. Christ will not. Repent of all that will keep you from life and believe in him. Believe in the testimony of his works. Believe in the testimony of his word. Believe in the testimony of his people. The Nicene Creed summarizes much of what we've heard in John chapter 5. And much like John's testimony, it's the testimony of the church throughout the ages. This is what we believe. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. Of the same essence of the Father, through him all things were made. For us, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Believe in him. Amen. Let's pray.